It might seem strange for me to mention here at the outset of Advent and the celebration of Christmas, it might seem strange to mention ghosts. And that really would be completely out of place, out of place, were it not for Charles Dickens and his classic, of course, A Christmas Carol, in which we know that poor old Ebenezer Scrooge is, well, paid a visit, paid a visit by the ghosts of Christmas's past, present, and future. The poor guy is, he's haunted over the course of that tale. Well, here's the thing. In a profound way, we are haunted as well. We are haunted as well. And by that, I, I don't mean by spirits. I don't mean by, by ghosts of Christmas's past, present, future. That's not in any way what I mean at all. I mean we are haunted by a sense that something is amiss. Something is, is, is off. The record is skipping. Uh, something doesn't feel quite right. Something, quite frankly, is wrong. And we know that. We know that intuitively. That We know that instinctively. When we simply look at uh, the world around us, we can see, we know, we know something is, is amiss, something is wrong. When we uh, look into our own hearts, when we're honest, however few and far between those moments may be, when we're honest, we recognize that something's wrong, something's amiss, even within me, within my heart, within yours. Something's off, something's amiss between us, relationally. It's not what it ought to be. And at its root of all of that, something is off, something is wrong, something is amiss between us and God. And we are haunted by that reality. Every man, woman, and child in some way in this world and has ever walked this globe feels something. Even if they can't, put, if they can't name it, if they can't describe it, if they just couldn't put words to it, it's still there haunted. We are haunted by a sense that something is off. But take heart, friends. That same God with whom something between us and him is amiss and awry has spoken, has spoken and moved towards us to heal the breach. If you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Uh, if you're trying to find that in the Bible, first off, it's in the Old Testament, okay? It's one of the larger books in the Old Testament. It's a few books to the right of Psalms. So just crack your Bible open, and that's the middle and literally the heart of the Bible, the book of Psalms. Head a few books to the right. If you've hit Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you've gone too far. The book of Isaiah. Isaiah, this is worth noting, this time of year especially. Isaiah sometimes is referred to as the fifth gospel. We only have four. But and the reason some scholars refer to Isaiah in that way is because he writes so much, so obviously all the scripture writers, Old Testament, do refer to Jesus. That's who they're pointing towards. But Isaiah is so clear. Isaiah is so clear. He's referred to not just as the fifth gospel, but as something of a prequel to the New Testament. These chapters that we find here in what we call now the book of Isaiah. Well, we're in Isaiah 44, just verses 1 to 5. Isaiah 44, just verses 1 to 5, the first in what a planned Advent series, Advent through the eyes of Isaiah. Advent through the eyes of Isaiah. We're going to start here this morning in Isaiah 44, verses 1 to 5. Hear now the word of God. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, 
Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you for working there seven centuries before your arrival in Isaiah. In Isaiah, as he was writing to his people then and writing to his people in what would be centuries later, and really to us all these centuries later. Oh, would you help us hear? Would you help us to hear? We are haunted, but you have spoken. We are haunted, but you have spoken. We pray that you would help us to see uh, how this news is so good, how it is so necessary, how it is so beautiful, that it would thrill the deepest parts of our being, that we would find ourselves celebrating this Advent in a fresh, deeper way, a truer way perhaps than ever before, for what we are beginning to see in you and in your coming for us. We pray in your name. Amen. Good news needs to be heard. Fair? Good news needs to be heard. Well, that's getting all the harder in China. I'll read to you an excerpt from the first few paragraphs from an article I was reading just this past week. In July, this past July, a six-year-old Chinese Bible app called We Devote marked a major milestone, 10 million installations. With its slick design, respect for copyrights, and curated Bible reading plans and devotionals, We Devote stands apart from other Bible applications for smartphones and tablets available in China. The app is a much-needed resource for Chinese Christians. Nearly all of We Devote's users are from mainland China, where government officials recently made it more difficult to purchase physical copies of the Bible. Officially, the Bible in China may be sold only at government-sanctioned three-self churches. But while We Devote co-founder Levi Fan may have been proud of the 10 millionth download on July 6th, the celebration was short-lived. Within a week, communist censors had blocked Chinese access to We Devote's website and scrubbed the app from most domestic app stores. This is not just an issue in China with apps, but all social media, all social media, because to res- and understand that to resist the state is to risk severe repercussions, severe penalties, including if you try to make any effort whatsoever to circumvent, to go around, to work around. Uh, the government's intense intention to shut out all outside news from their people, that which is not filtered, of course, through the approved state. All of this bears the mark of what you would have to call a tyrannical government. It bears the marks of a tyrannical 
government. But the deal is good news needs to be heard. Good news still needs to be heard. Now, what does this have to do with Christmas, you may be asking? Well, I'm glad you, you asked. Christmas, at its heart, is about news. It's about what the news of what the God of the universe has done. It's, it's, it's the news of a birth. It's a birth announcement. That's what Christmas at its heart is. It's why the angels, they're outside the little town of Bethlehem, explode that night with the news, joy to the world. Why? For the Lord has come. Well, actually, that was Isaac Watts. That was not the angels, but their, Watts was paraphrasing what the angels were saying. It was, it is such good news, good news of the kingdom, the inbreaking of the kingdom and the coming of the king. Good news that the deep, of the deepest longings of our hearts being met. That's what Christmas is about. That's what it really is at its, its fundamental level. It's the news of Christmas meets our deepest longings, meets our very deepest longing. And that is why we have to give it a hearing, a real hearing, not just a surfacey kind of way, just a sentimental sort of thing. And I'm not dissing the sentiment and the, celib- the traditions you know, all around it, but at its heart, we need to hear Hear this message, this good news, the news of Christmas, giving it a hearing. Now, as we do so, okay, fine. What do we hear as you give it a hearing? What is this news in particular as encapsulated for us here in Isaiah 44? Three things, very simple but profound, quite profound. First, you are not forsaken. Second, you will flourish again. And third, all because of the Lord's faithfulness. You take any of those and it should change your life. You take the three together, look out. You're not forsaken. You will flourish again. And this is all because of God's faithfulness. Let's look at these one at a time. In in turn, first, you are not Forsaken. Think with me what, if you know anything about the backdrop of, of the book of Isaiah, and I'm going to try and explain it here quickly. If you know anything about it, what the people, what Israel at this point is assuming, is a, what they are assuming is coming to them. Let's consider what they've done, all right? How do things stand between them and the Lord? They had received so much, so, so very much in terms of his mercy, his grace, his love, his blessings, poured out upon them for centuries. That's what they had received. How had they responded? Again and again and again, and with an increasing depth of depravity, a coldness, a cold formalism in their worship of him, and a flat aloofness towards the needs of one another. No mercy, no justice, no concern. For one another. That's, so here's what they've received, and this is how they've responded. What, what was all this ultimately about? Who, what, were they, what were they for? What was the Lord's intention? For, to be a light. To be a light for the nations. To be a blessing to the peoples around them. And sadly, too often they had proven themselves to be little more than a curse, not a blessing. 
a curse misguiding the nations around him as to who the God of Israel really was. What have they received? How have they responded? The Lord says, my people and my covenantal love and my covenantal purposes, here is what is coming. Cleansing and purging of your sin that is going to come through invasion and exile. It will give me no pleasure, but it is what must take place. He'd said that centuries before, and now it's simply coming to pass. A cleansing, a purging, through invasion and exile. So, all right, again, back to the question, what is Israel assuming is coming? They are assuming they're done. They're done, and he's done with them. But that's not what he says. That's not at all what he says. Uh, their assumptions are so completely wrong, as are often the case ours. How does he speak to them? The opening salvo here in verses 1 and 2. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. These beautiful opening words. But now, blowing up all your expectations, all your assumptions, everything that you thought would surely have to be the case, but now, some of the most beautiful words in all the Bible, but this is what you thought, this is what you deserve, but this is what you're going to get because this is who I am. My grace, my mercy, my covenantal love. A shift is coming. A change is coming. The, the exile is not the last word. The purging, the cleansing, the discipline is not the last. It is a word, but it's not the last word. It's not the last word. And then these sweet reminders twice, just there in verses 1 and 2, he refers to Israel as my servant, which is a title of honor and trust my, not you dumb old servant, but my, my servant. Twice, lest they would miss it. And then this renaming, almost like a nickname, and a sweet sense of irony, Yeshurun. That's actually how you pronounce it, not Jeshurun, but Yeshurun, which means literally upright one. Now you think of the beautiful irony in that. He's calling them my upright one, which is hardly reflective of anything in their past, hardly reflective of anything in their present. What does it have to do with what he's going to make them? Not what they've been, not what they are, but what they're going to become. My upright one. Oh, Yeshurun. Oh, Yeshurun, you are not forsaken. My purposes for you and in you and through you will be accomplished. My irrevocable, unchangeable, steadfast purposes for you and through you are not going anywhere. That's the news of Christmas. That's part of it. You are not forsaken. Whatever else you may be thinking of yourself, whatever else, frankly, you may think you deserve. Child of God, you are not forsaken. 
Turn with me a few chapters to the right in Isaiah. This is all the book of Isaiah is just filled with this sort of assurance and promise. Isaiah 55, verses uh, 6 and starting in verses 6 and 7. This is, is a passage that is oftentimes quoted, but I fear misunderstood of the, the fullness of what's being said here. So in Isaiah 55, again, we're going to start in verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Just stop there for a minute. On what grounds should we bother? Seeking him, calling upon him. Why should we hope that when we do so, he'll have compassion to us, for us, and, and abundantly pardon us? What, on what grounds would we have to believe such a thing? He goes on to, to tell us. Look at where we left off in verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I understand that's not a bad text to quote when you're trying to, to get a, a handle on how big God is and how other he is and how wise he is and how mighty he is, which he is, 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 is. But that text is ultimately about how great his love is and great his mercy. It is beyond our fathoming. There's nothing in this life to which we can compare it because it's so much higher. So much higher, so much better, so much grander is his love, is his mercy. My friends, this, this time of year, and I don't have to go into much detail in explaining this. You know this. If you've lived one Christmas in the Western world, you know that there's so much noise. There's so much noise this, this time of year. I'm not saying it's all noise. I'm just saying it's so much Noise, so much distraction, so much, so much busyness, so much noise. And, and so much of that is not just on the outside, but so much of it is on the inside, the, the, the noise. And that noise needs to be quieted. And the only way you can do that is turn up the volume on Jesus' words. Turn up the volume on Jesus' words, Isaiah 44, O oh, Yeshurun, know of my love, hear of my love, fear not. What have you to fear? You are mine. You are mine. You are not forsaken. The news of Christmas, my friends, it truly does meet our deepest longings how we need to give it a hearing. Let's press on because there's yet more here. Not only you are not forsaken, but you will yet flourish again. Now, he speaks here of a divine transformation that was this coming. An end to a drought. Uh, verse 3, we see that using imagery that the people would have well, well understood. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In an ancient agrarian culture, the possibility of drought, of dry, cracked earth, of a hard sky, of brown, crispy crops was the stuff of nightmares. 
And that's the image that he's using here. But what really is Isaiah speaking of? Not their fields, their hearts. They are, Isaiah is saying, they are, we are, the thirsty land, the dry ground. It's a spiritual drought that we are suffering from, they were suffering from. And he's saying that new life is coming down. New life is coming down, pouring down, like rain. The Spirit coming is what the prophet is speaking of here, a divine transformation. And in and through that, what I'll just call the long-promised, long-awaited fulfillment of the promised expansion, the transformation and then the expansion. That's where you get into verses 4 and 5. So because of what comes through in verse 3, this pouring out, what then happens there in verses 4 to 5? They, your descendants and all upon whom this, this pouring has come, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. This is what they were meant to be from the beginning. God's grace pouring into them and through them to the peoples around them. His grace into them and through them to the peoples around them. Go back. We went to Isaiah 55 earlier. Let's go to Isaiah 25 now. Isaiah 25, where you hear something similar to what we just read in Isaiah 44. 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You see, there's this transformation that was, is coming, was coming and has now come, leads to such this, this a gladdened, identification, a multiplication, these testimonies. You read of that here in verses 4 and 5. One after another, after another, after another, gladly, triumphantly saying, this is what he's done in my life. This is where I was. This is where I am now. This radical, beautiful transformation, stunning turnaround, where all of it was dark and full of death gives way to life, despair giving way to, to hope. It is nothing less than miraculous. Creation is miraculous. Recreation is miraculous. And no few of us in this room could speak of this in our own, in our own lives. This is where I was. But by his grace, this is where I am now. I once was lost, right? But now I'm found, was blind, but now I 
see, my friends, and this is such fuel for prayer. What Isaiah is describing here in verses 4, well, starting in verse 3 and moving on to verses 4 and 5 is nothing less than revival. A supernatural working of the Spirit of God sweeping through His people and then through His people to the peoples around them. And that's, oh my goodness, something we need to be praying for, longing for, as we consider the... the, um, thirsty land and dry ground all around us in individuals that we know and care for, but then this whole culture, this whole culture of which we're a part, praying for the Spirit's coming. The news of Christmas is that good. It's that good. It's that real. Meeting our, the deepest longings. Oh, again, again, the, the hearing that we need to give to this. Okay, well, that then takes us to the third point. So you have the assurance you are not forsaken, you will flourish again. But why should we, or I'll put it this way, how can we, how can we be assured of that? What is it all hinging on, or, or who? Us? Is it, does it depend in some way on, on, on us? Something that we've got to do, something we've got to earn? No, thank God, literally, no. It is upon his faithful love which locks it down, which absolutely locks it down as real and true. Again, back to verses 1 and 2. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen chosen, these promises, oh, these promises made long, long before. Think of what is implicit and explicit in what we just read there in verses 1 and 2. I chose you. I chose you before the foundation of the world. My sovereign, unconditional love was set upon you. I chose you. I made you. I created you. As a people, I brought you into existence for my unshakable purposes. I created you. I chose you. I formed you. It's more language that's used there. I formed you when you were within the womb as a people. I set my heart, my affection upon you. I chose you. I made you. I formed you. What else do you want to know? How much more can I say? Promises made long, long ago and accomplished finally and fully in Jesus. Do you know Isaiah 44 is about Jesus? Really? In the end? And, and really from the beginning and, and all soaked through? You know, this is not the last time in the Bible that we read of or hear of thirst. Turn with me to John's gospel, John chapter 7. John 7, these astonishing words that Jesus speaks there. John 7, verses 37 through 38, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 7, verses 37 through 38, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. 
And that's not the first time in John's gospel that he speaks of thirst. The first time is actually back in John 4, so turn with me there, when he's speaking in midday to an ostracized woman, an outcast within Samaria, uh, just beside a well. We call her all the time, the woman at the well. And there in John 4, verses 13 through 14, listen to what Jesus says there. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So we have this assurance that our thirst is somehow, our longing, okay, is going to be quenched in some way, some, some, how. But again, how? How does Jesus do that? Does he just wave a wand and, okay, done? Does he just say, okay, it's done? Like, I, I got a, a declaration, boom, and my seal upon it. Is that, no. No, it's not that simple. It's not that simple at all. He has to fully enter in. For our thirst to be quenched, he has to become the thirsty one. So John 19, John 19, I know it's Advent, but this is a quote from Good Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross. In John 19, verse 28, this is what he says. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I thirst. He has to fully enter in. He has to fully enter into our experience. And in order for our thirst to be quenched, he has to become the thirsty one. Put another way, he has to live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die. And that's good news because he has. That's actually Christmas news. It's the only thing that makes Christmas good news at all. Oh, Yeshurun, my upright one, my servant, my servant, Hear me, hear me. You need fear no more. I don't think this is actually a carol. Amy, maybe you could check me on this later. But I don't think that any of our carols actually have this line in it. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. But that's not a bad carol to sing. That's not a bad thing to repeat all through Advent. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, my friends. We, we have, because of his steadfast love, because of this faithfulness that secures and assures that we are not forsaken, that we will flourish again, we have a storehouse of riches, promises that we, we can just, we just know. We have the, rich, the deepest, most profound assurance are real and true. Let me just give you a, 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 a quick sampling. You are forgiven of your sin and freed from it as well. Strength in weakness, mercy in trial. Prayers answered. Nothing in vain. 
No tears wasted with you and for you till the end. And one day, all things new. That's a storehouse. That's a treasury. And that's a sampling. I just, you know, drilled a, a core sampler down in there. Look, look, look what came up. Look what came up with one little core sample. There's so much there. The news of Christmas meets the deepest longings of our heart. And it, it, that news is real and true that we are not forsaken and we can flourish again. Let me end with this. No few of you I know are very familiar, far more than I am, with a cultural phenomenon that began back in November of 2010 with the showing of a made-for-TV movie on the Hallmark Channel, yes, you may know where I'm going with this, called A Family Christmas, Family Thanksgiving, sorry. It's called A Family Thanksgiving. Now, 232 movies later, on the Hallmark Channel, we have this cultural phenomenon now known as the countdown to Christmas. None of those movies is going to win an award. I, I just, I'm just reading what the critics say. I'm not, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. None of them has, none of them will. Hallmark doesn't care because millions are watching and the ad revenue is just coming. They don't care. Here's my question. How do you explain this cultural phenomenon? What's underneath that? Why is it right now, when you look at the ratings right now, that the Hallmark Christmas movies far outstrip any non-news or non-sports programming on cable television right now? There's no competition. How do you explain that? What's underneath that? What's underneath that is the, the simply that a longing has been tapped. A very human, understandable, good longing. For hearts to be mended, for wounds to be healed, for problems to be solved, for all that is sad to come untrue. And somehow, in the course of a short time, you know, there on the, on the screen, it happens. And so people understandably tune in for the escape, for the refuge, for the glimpse of another world. What if it was true? What if it could happen? Was see, what if it was true? What if there is something there? But it's not about this amorphous, ambiguous, vague, the spirit of Christmas but the gospel of Christmas, the news of Christmas that is actually true, that is actually the fulfillment of the deepest heart's longing that drives us to tune in. The news of Christmas that addresses our deepest heart's longing not forsaken, flourishing, flourishing again. It's coming and coming now. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, would you help us to hear this news, to embrace it, to entrust ourselves to you, to wrestle with, to consider, to ask, what if I believe this? How would my life look differently if I believe this? What impact would that have upon my my own cold, formal worship? How would that transform my flat aloofness towards the needs of people around me? How would it turn my life upside down and inside out if I believe this? Just this afternoon, what would this afternoon look like and tomorrow morning look like if I began to believe this? We pray that you'd give us a vision for Isaiah's vision and help us to believe. We pray in your name. Amen. If I may ask our active elders to come down front, we're about to celebrate here the sacrament of the Lord's Supper.